Hello, and welcome to the Urban Fresh Podcast, where we interview followers of Jesus from around the world. I'm your host, Tanisha. Today, our guest is Pastor Andre McGuire from Waterbury, Connecticut. Okay, Reverend McGuire, thank you again for joining us today. Where I reached out to you on LinkedIn, and um, you said yes. Amen. So, so thank you. All right, so uh, please tell us about yourself and, and your ministry. Right. Um, I'm Andre McGuire. I'm Pastor Andre McGuire. I was ordained pastor back in 94. And um, it's been a serious journey. Mm. Um, ironically, I was never the one that anybody would expect to go into ministry. At least I wouldn't think so. And uh, matter of fact, I was so bad at one point that pretty much if you started talking to me about God, you'd wind up getting cursed out. You know, uh, I wasn't hearing it. We was I was brought up in church. Um, tell everybody we had my family. You know, we had a drug problem. Mm. We was drugged to Sunday school, drugged to vacation Bible school, drugged to prayer service, drugged to Boy Scouts, karate. Everything was at the church. We was, we had a serious drug problem, um, but it was a blessed drug problem that I find out in the end. Um, I guess when I was about thirteen, my mother gave me a choice. She said, "Look." You're old enough to make your own decision. So you decide if you want to go to church. And I went by what my father said. He said he wouldn't darken the door of the place because every time he turned around, they passed a basket around. He said even if he tried to say hello, they passed a basket around. And then when he wanted to say goodbye, they passed a basket around. And it just so happened that this particular Sunday after he said this, it might have been Easter or some holiday, and every time they sang a song, they passed the basket around. So, you know, uh, when I had that choice, I said, I'm not going back to church at all. And um, truthfully, at that point in my life, things turned topsy-turvy, but I didn't associate it then with me going away from God. I accepted Christ probably when I was about eight or nine years old. Um, so I had that relationship with him. I just never grew to develop it any, um, not beyond the cursory stuff for a Sunday school for kids. And, um, when I walked away from God, I'm grateful that he did not walk away from me. Um, when I walked away within that same year, they had the riots in Newark. I'm from Newark, New Jersey. And me and a couple of friends went to Springfield Avenue to see if we could get something the day after. We got there and uh, there was a guy, National Guardsman, stuck a gun in my face. The barrel looked like it was about four inches wide. I know it wasn't in reality, sure. but to me at that age, it looked like it was huge. And uh, he said, go home. I don't remember going home, but I remember being in the house. Wow. Um, <clears throat> the next time, probably within a year to a year and a half, um, I got stabbed. Uh, because some guys had stole my bike and me and a friend, we went to find the bikes and I was expecting for them to just give me the bike back when I told them that's my bike. But apparently that's not the way it worked. <laughs> and, um, and I wound up getting stabbed um, by God's grace, even then. And again, not been known to me. Um, I wound up going to where I saw a uh, fire because I saw blood dripping off the bottom of my pants. And the fire chief actually took me in his car to the hospital because he was afraid to wait for the ambulance. And when I got there, my heart had stopped beating. The doctor said they were in the midst of surgery. They didn't have the equipment that they have now. So they'd actually use a circular saw to cut from here 
all the way across to the center of the chest, all the way across to the left side and all the way around back mm -hmm. to halfway so they could open it up and see if my heart or lung had been punctured. Um, apparently, they could not give me a lot of anesthesia. Mm -hmm. So in the middle of that, I woke up and I heard him say, you got to push hard. He's got good muscle. And I started to laugh until it started to hurt. It's something that I don't think many folks would ever even want to feel mm -hmm. when somebody's pulling your chest plate apart. You know, so um, I woke up then. But when I came to after the surgery, the doctor said that my heart had stopped beating. He said that he had done everything he could to revive me and he could not. Uh, so he had turned to the nurse and asked the nurse for the time of death. Wow. When he asked for the time of death, mm. the heart monitor said, boom, boom, mm. boom, boom. Wow. So, and again, God's still keeping me, even mm -hmm. though I'm not there with him. Right. Um, How old were you at this point? 12 years old. 12. Wow. Um, between 12 and 13, I got stabbed twice. I had a, Actually, a police officer emptied his gun shooting at me. Mm -hmm. And by God's grace, he didn't kill me. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of rough. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, the sad thing is my mind said that's the norm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I didn't register. It did not register with me emotionally the way it should have. Um, so if, I, if I can interject. So you, you said you grew up in a household of parents who knew the Lord, right? Yes. Why do you think you're didn't want to follow what they were telling you. Is it that your friends were yes. pulling you another way? In, in my community, a matter of fact, if, they, if, they, if you go to church and mm -hmm. you decide you want to go just to go to church, right. uh, they truthfully said you were gay. Okay. You know, it's uh, any man to go to church on his own, you mm -hmm. know, he ain't right. Right. So that's not the fashionable place to right, go at right, that right, time. Right, 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 right. Um, but it, it it got to be rough. Um, God kept me mm -hmm. uh, through all, all of that, um, through high school, through college, through graduate school. Yeah. Um, and again, without me understanding it, he was allowing me to meet those milestones. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But my mom was saying that I was the one who was doing all of this right. because, again, I wasn't going to church. I wasn't following. I wasn't paying any attention right, right. to him. But uh, he, I find, allowed me to experience some things mm -hmm. so that when it comes to an opportunity for me to minister to somebody, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I will have some kind of a background to minister from. How did you move from the kid who was rebelling mm -hmm. to going to college? Because you have a, a Juris doctorate. You're, mm -hmm. You were a lawyer. How did you move from the rebellious kid to even getting into college and um, then grad school? High school, my mother taught for years. Mm -hmm. She graduated summa cum laude from Seton Hall University. Yeah. My background of teachers within my family. Right. But I always, I guess in seventh grade, I decided I wanted to go to law school. Okay. Um, and again, things seemed to go just like I said. I decided when I was going to graduate high school, when I was going to graduate college, law mm -hmm. school, et cetera, et cetera. And I think in my sophomore year of high school, um, school was kind of easy for me yeah and i would go but sitting in class if you gave me an exam i'm finishing five or ten minutes mm -hmm. i have nothing to do uh so i talk i do whatever i wanted to do uh i stopped going to classes because it didn't make sense to me because the stuff they were doing was stuff that i did mm -hmm. years before and um 
you can't graduate if you don't have a certain number of school days. Mm -hmm. So my mother got a call and she politely told me that if I did not attend class, I would not play football. So I had to go to class, (laughs) you know. Okay. So football drove you into college, I guess. Football. I got a scholarship. I went to the University of Connecticut playing on a scholarship. Oh, wow. What what, what, uh, sport? Football, playing football. football. Okay. Yes, okay. and I was a okay. defensive back and wide receiver while yeah. I was there. Yeah, got it. So you you go to college, you go to um, grad school. Did you practice law right after that, or I did. As a oh. matter of fact, well, when I graduated from law school, I initially clerked for the Superior Court in Essex County mm-hmm. uh, for a year. Okay. Um, and uh, coming after that, I was working with a law firm, but I've always had a understanding of my own value mm-hmm. and I understood that the amount of money that the law firm was paying me was far below what I should have mm-hmm. been getting. Mm-hmm. So I just let them know that, you know, with the next paycheck, if it doesn't reflect yeah. what I should be getting, then I'll be You're going, going on. <laughs> so you, you went to law school, but then you're a minister now. Mm-hmm. How, how did you get the call? That was, um, after law school, um, I started having a drinking issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not, didn't grow up drinking. I didn't drink. Matter of fact, the first time I tasted alcohol, I was a freshman in college. Mm-hmm. The next time I tasted alcohol, I was in law school. Right. And um, and I drank socially as far as I was concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, sometimes when you drink, there's a point where you start off as a cucumber and you become pickled. Okay. You can never go back to being a cucumber. Uh... When I started off drinking, I was fine. But when I crossed over the drinking, the drinking line into alcoholism, I could not get back to the non-drinking cucumber. And um, and that created a problem. And that's the thing that drew me further and further into an abyss, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what I found is while I got had been drawn into that abyss, I believe it's something that God allowed for his purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, He needed me to be brought low so that I could look up, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. and at the point in my active addiction where I could not stop, I could not figure out how to stop. Mm-hmm. And I was doing everything I could to figure it out. Mm-hmm. But I had received a, I was receiving letters from a friend of mine at the end of every letter was a Bible verse. Mm. And I couldn't figure out how to stop. But at some point, something said to me, well, you tried everything else. You might as well pray. Got it. So I prayed about it. And um, the prayer, prayer, God answers prayers may not always be the way you want. Mm -hmm. You know, I was asking him to stop me from drinking and drugging. I needed help because I couldn't. And what he did was he sent the cops to kick my door in. Mm -hmm. And um, I stopped just like that. that. (laughs) So cold turkey. You didn't have a choice because I was sitting up in the jail, (laughs) you know, and um, and you're not going to be drinking. As a Mm -hmm. matter of fact, they would not allow me in. Of the general population, mm-hmm. they had me in solitary confinement because because of my profession, they said, no, you would create problems in yeah. general pop. So I sat in there. And of course, while I'm sitting in there, guy comes by with a Bible, tear mask. So I said, well, let me have that book. So I sat there. And so I spent time reading it, praying. Then all of a sudden, guy came that I went to school with and said, look, if you could say you have a problem with drinking and drugging, mm-hmm. you know, I might be able to get you some help. So I had to weigh it out because I actually had a $100,000 cash bail. They didn't want 10%, didn't want a house, they wanted cash. And I know I didn't have $100,000. So Mm -hmm. I said, I might as well get comfortable. I read the Bible, I prayed, I ate, I did everything I was supposed to do. 
and I didn't realize God was listening to me as I'm praying mm -hmm. um, because it was no mistake that the gentleman came there and told me what he did. Right. And um, when he said that, not after I waited out, I said, yeah, I have a problem drinking and drugging took me before one of the judges and it happens to be in the same court building that mm -hmm. I used to clerk in. Mm -hmm. So the judge said, if he's here with this kind of a charge, I know he's got a problem. Mm -hmm. So the judge actually released me in my own recognizance directly to the, uh, the director of probation. So he could get me into a rehab. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, at one point in the, in the rehab, I started to realize something was strange. Mm -hmm. Um, the strange thing that I thought about was every time something happened and I prayed about it, whatever I prayed about happened. Mm -hmm. So within my mind, I said, I need to find out who I'm praying to. Okay. The irony was in 77, when I was playing football at UConn, we was at an away game and I stole a Gideon's Bible. Mm -hmm. I had nothing else from 77, but when I went to this rehab in 92, I had that Gideon's Bible with me. Wow. So I'm sitting in the back of this room and I'm starting to realize I need to find out who I'm praying to. That Gideon's Bible was there for me to begin reading, nice. you know, and developing that relationship mm -hmm, with God. Mm -hmm. That's how I got back okay. to God, you know, okay. and uh, within the first five books, mm -hmm. I learned to fear the Lord. Yeah. Uh, because he did some things in the first five books to let you know he's not to be played mm -hmm, with, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, um, and the amazing thing is, as the scripture says, once I developed that fear of the Lord, it was the beginning of wisdom, wisdom. for me because I began to seek him. Yeah. Was that the time? Was that how you you lost your license? Your No, actually, okay. no. Um, that was years later. Okay. Years later. I had actually been ordained yes. um, by that time. Um, and I had been um, practicing law and mm -hmm. um Ministry as a pastor of church. Okay. And unfortunately, I allowed myself to go through a burnout. Mm -hmm. um, I was doing much too many things. And to me, there was nothing I was doing that I was not able to do. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, just because I'm able to do things doesn't mean that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Got it. And that's what I found out the hard way. I wound up committing a crime, you know, while I was in recovery, mm -hmm. after I was ordained. Um, I had stopped going to meetings for a period of about three years uh, because I was too busy. This is AA meetings? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. I was too busy. Um, I was passing the church. Um, the missionary trips to Africa came yes. up. I went there. Um, we had to sell the old church building and buy a new building. Mm -hmm. So I was doing actually the, the closing materials for those. Mm -hmm. um, find somebody to uh, rent out the place and... It was really a lot of work. Um, even when it came to the new building, I wound up being the major contractor, giving everybody instructions about what to do mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, doing mm -hmm. some of the tearing down walls and painting and building it up. Right. That's not what I was called to do. Yeah. But it allowed me to get to a point where I wasn't functioning mentally mm -hmm, the way I should have mm -hmm, been. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't come to that conclusion until after the fact when I talked to a counselor. And he asked me, he said, um, well, you're in recovery, right? I said, yeah. Yeah. He said, when's the last time you went to a meeting? And I had to think about it because mm -hmm. it had been a while. I said, about mm -hmm. three years ago. He said, well, that's part of your problem. He said, you've not been in a position where you really have an opportunity to have yourself accountable to anybody mm -hmm. else, mm -hmm. you know, and you missed some feedback that you needed. 
right. to keep you online. Right. Um, amazingly, I went to a meeting that night and there was a woman in the meeting who talked about the exact same issue I had, mm-hmm. but she talked about how she got through it. Yeah. And I was looking at that like, wow. Yeah. I should have been here the whole time. Whole but, time. Yeah. You yeah. know, you, you learn. And, and again, I believe God allowed me to go through some of the stuff that I did mm-hmm. for a purpose because mm-hmm. I would not have come to him with a mind to serve. I would not have been equipped to do the things that he would have me to do now yeah. Um, yeah. without some of the stuff that I've had to experience on. Got it. I was licensed when I was licensed to preach. The first thing that I was asked to do was to develop a prison ministry. Mm-hmm. I don't deal with criminals. Mm-hmm. That's just, that was not my thing. There's right. no reason for me to be, I don't want to hang around in no jail. Mm-hmm. When I, when I, when I finally went in there, you know, dealing with this ministry, when they closed that door, everybody in there looked just like me. Mm-hmm. If anything happened, I was like, yo, I need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in this place. Yeah. So it wasn't where I wanted to be, but God knew that was something that I needed to learn how to deal with. Right, right. Um, and it's been instrumental again. Um, I walk the street all the time and I see people who've been in prison mm-hmm. um, who think there's no way out. You know, and um, and I can let them know for sure. Yeah, that there is definitely a way out. <laughs> yeah, you know? but um, speaking of there being no way out, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to quote something you wrote um in an article called "The Heterosexual Black Man: A Missing Key mm-hmm. in Getting to Zero. You 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 put this on pause dot com. You said. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found myself in prison with no capacity to return to my professional life. Um, You also wrote, I came out of prison in 2010. I found myself without money and no relatives in the state of Connecticut. I found myself in church basements asking for money to get clothes. I had to rely upon the state to provide food stamps and charity and the charity of people and agencies for personal hygiene items and a roof over my head. Were you living in a church basement? I wasn't living in a church basement. Uh, I had actually been in prison uh-huh. probably for a year longer than I was supposed to okay. be there. Okay. I was voted to parole a year before I was actually mm-hmm. released. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I got out of the prison, because I was living with HIV, yeah. they found housing for me. Mm-hmm. But that was just a place to stay for a temporary time until you got yourself together. Okay. Uh, there was no food. There was no matter of fact, the only clothes I had with a jail clothes mm. and mind you, I spent six years in there. So I'm walking around with, uh, I call them skippies, little white shoes with <laughs> no name, nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had jail jeans and, uh, the sweatshirt, you know? And so that's why I wound up actually in basement. And it was really, really painful for me mm. being in a church basement, knowing that I had the background that I had, and I have nothing mm-hmm. and nobody, mm-hmm. you know, it was just me. Um, but I guess the time I spent with the Lord, because every day that I was in prison, I was blessed to be able to have a Bible study. Mm-hmm. I held the Bible study no matter where I was every single day that I was there. Mm-hmm. And it was attended by a lot of folks. And um, I think my youngest son told me something while I was in there. Um, he wrote me a letter and he was saying, I, I know why you're here. And I was thinking to myself, oh, Lord, mm-hmm. here we go. And he said, you need to tell somebody about Jesus. Oh, wow. And he was right. He was right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was right. You mentioned your family. I wanted to know, wh- where was your family at this time? And how did that, your being in prison, impact them? 
It was really, really rough. Uh, they were in New Jersey because yeah. I'm from New Jersey, yeah. as I said. And um, it was rough. Um, the kids struggled because they were used to their father being mm-hmm. home. Uh, the wife, ex-wife mm-hmm. um, struggled because she didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, they had people that were really saying some mean and nasty things mm-hmm. about me. Mm-hmm. Um the sad thing is the prosecutor that I wound up having here made the statement that she was going to do anything she could to destroy my family. Mm. And I'm thinking to myself, my family, they're not the ones that's on trial uh-huh. here, you know. And But that, unfortunately, was the mindset mm-hmm. that, that she mm-hmm. had. Mm-hmm. And she had that mindset because she had been told by, look, why don't you just leave our family alone? Mm-hmm. You know, we've been through counseling. We've done a lot of things. I'd been through counseling for probably about 18 months before mm-hmm. I was ever even arrested. Mm-hmm. You know, so our family had worked through stuff and we were moving forward. Yeah. And then the state of Connecticut came in. Happened. All right. I, I want to backtrack a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the ministry you, you mentioned a while ago that you were, you're living with HIV. Mm-hmm. W- your ministry, tell us about the ministry you have right now. Right. Yeah. Ministry we have is Alms Ministries yeah. and International. And the the funny thing is, and I always say this, God always has jokes. Yeah. Alms Ministry, ministry that keeps on giving. Yes. Alms. Alms. Uh-huh. My initials are Andre I noticed Lewis that. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I didn't know. know about the middle, but I saw yeah. A and M. And it's yeah. like, maybe so he named it after himself. That, that was not. it. <laughs> <laughs> and and I had to laugh too because I was like, wow, God, he just really yeah. got plenty of jokes. Yeah. You know? So he's always known what I was supposed to do. Even mm-hmm. when it came to uh, practicing law, I thought it was so I could be another F. Lee Bailey. But it turns out that when I was called to ministry and my question to God was, if I've been called to ministry, you need to show me I know how to write a mm-hmm. close a, a, a sermon. Mm-hmm. So he, so I sat down on writing a sermon when I finished, I looked at it, and the sermon is a closing statement. So he allowed me to go to law school so I can get the tools to mm-hmm, do what he mm-hmm, wanted me to do anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, but um, and that has been uh, my process. Uh, again, uh, dealing with HIV. Right. Um, alms ministry doesn't just deal with HIV. It deals with trying to transform men, yeah. essentially, uh, because my belief is that if we straighten men out, then everybody else is going to be okay. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. going with the order that God has given us. That's right. Um, if, if if we are out of that order, our families will struggle. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of women who are doing a great job trying to take care of sons, daughters, and everybody else while they're working two jobs sometimes and going to school. Yeah. Unfortunately, when you look at statistics now, you see a lot of them having mental health issues. Directly uh-huh. related to that, uh-huh. you know, because God didn't call them to tow that that load by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, God allowed us to have men here so that we can get ourselves out there mm-hmm. and do the things that we were supposed to be doing. Right. Um, provide for our family, you know, um, be the priest of our home, mm-hmm. you know, be the protector of our home. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, if we have not gone to school, if we have not developed that relationship with Christ, a lot of that stuff we don't learn. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the men, or as I grew up, um, we didn't know anything about feelings. <laughs> um, there was two feelings we had, happy and sad. That was it. Mm. <laughs> you know, that was it. Um, talking about hurt and, you know, uh, 
irritated and that that didn't make any sense, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, to mm-hmm. that's just, again, and growing up in Newark, if I said to somebody I was hurt, they'd probably be taking my lunch money. That was my mindset as I grew up. So, yes. no, some things you just didn't do. Um, yeah. My father, as a matter of fact, told me at six years old, um, I bet I see you in this house crying no more. Wow. Because your mother got enough problems where she shouldn't have to look at you running around here like a little punk crying. Oh. And I never cried again until I was in my 30s. Wow. So I really stopped growing emotionally from that point mm-hmm, till then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, while I was there in prison, I actually asked 10 men, can you name 10 emotions? Mm-hmm. Two people were able to name 10 emotions. And one knew what those emotions were. Mm. Most of the problems that the men in prison wound up dealing with mm-hmm. are because they've never learned how to deal with emotions. Yeah, yeah. And um, instead of you recognizing fear as fear, uh, you do like they do in the military. They process fear as anger mm. so that you can react, mm-hmm. you know, in mm-hmm. our society uh, as we're growing up, pat you on the back for reacting. You beat so-and-so up. Yeah, that's yeah, the that's man. Yeah, that's good. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> And and I I see now why maybe you found it uh, why you thought it was important for you to write this article in the first place the heterosexual black man a missing key uh, in getting to zero why was it important for you I, I'm I'm guessing it's because of the the interest that you have in having men be part of the the, the how how we grow up our children and how we you know how they head the family Amen. um but um pause dot com deals with what's that website about pause deal mm-hmm. with people living with hiv hiv okay okay got it. i've been living with hiv for 30 plus years yes and um the one thing that i found since i've been here in the state of connecticut i have been the co-chair of the connecticut hiv planning consortium mm-hmm. which is the statewide planning body for people living with hiv right. and i've been a co-chair of the greater Hartford ron white planning council which is the planning body for people in the Hartford TGA uh, that deals with HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was co-chair in, well, actually for CHIPS, I've been co-chair of that on two, for two consecutive terms. Okay. Um, for the Greater Hartford Ryan White Planning Council, I was co-chair of that for two consecutive terms. Mm-hmm. However, I got drafted again, so I'm currently the co-chair of the Greater Hartford Ryan White Planning Council again. Okay, good. And the one thing that I found uh, being in that position is the specific group that's constantly ignored mm-hmm. are heterosexual black men, mm. uh, most at risk in probably every health category you can think of. Uh, when I'm going through here, I'm watching everything that's going on, and I see services being provided to everybody, um, all kinds of stuff coming up. But I'm asking, well, where do you have programs for heterosexual black men? Mm-hmm. <laughs> As recently as maybe four months ago, I was told well, heterosexual black men are not getting HIV. Hmm. Now, that's just odd to me because in this country, the, there will be 65 to 70% of all the women that will get HIV mm-hmm. will be black women. Hmm. 65 to 70% of those women mm-hmm. say they got HIV from a heterosexual black male. Mm-hmm. So you can't tell me there are no heterosexual black males Mm -hmm. with HIV, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. um, But the truth of the matter is um, they will come up with those statistics. And then I always ask dumb questions that make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Like, well, how many heterosexual black males did you test Mm -hmm. to see if they had HIV? 
um, the last conversation that I had, um, there were maybe 2,000 black folks that they had tested, for instance, and probably 6,000 Hispanics that they had tested. Mm -hmm. Um, They're finding a lot of Hispanic people that are actually living with HIV. Why? Because that's what you're testing. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't test people, you can't determine whether or not they have it. Um, I have sons. I have grandsons. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do everything I can to try and make sure Mm -hmm. that they are protected. Um, HIV is not a death sentence Mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. You can live with HIV just like you live with any other disease Mm -hmm. as long as you take care of yourself, take your medication. As a matter of fact, it's so good they use PrEP or PEP. Um, pre-exposure prophylaxis, you know, and post-exposure prophylaxis. Mm-hmm. Both of those, if you take that and uh, the person that you're involved with who may be living with HIV, mm-hmm. their blood is not detectable or the HIV is not detectable in their blood, they're not going to transmit HIV to you, mm-hmm. particularly if you're using those particular drugs. Yeah. But unfortunately, within the black community, very few people know anything about those things. And to me, it's appalling. They told me at one point, well, you know, we can't go into the black church because they don't want to listen to anything we say. Mm-hmm. And of course, I have questions about that because, yes, they will. Right. Um, I was at Shiloh in Hartford and pastor asked me to do what they call an inside out service. We had church service on the left side in the parking lot. There on the right side, we had all kinds of community and health services. One of the health services we provided was HIV testing and screening. Um, the problem that they had was they ran out of time. They didn't have enough time to test everybody mm-hmm. who was coming to get tested. Um, and we did that for two years, every uh, third Sunday of the month during the summer. You know, So yes, they will get tested and the churches will work with you. Um, did the same thing here in Waterbury with Grace Baptist Church um, last year. And uh, Grace, we must have had about at least a thousand people to come there. Mm-hmm. And again, they ran out of testing stuff <laughs> because people would get tested yeah. and the church would be instrumental in mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. It's just that um, we had a, I was a part of a men and boys of color summit that the university of Connecticut put on their health disparities mm-hmm. unit, as well as the city of Hartford. And my responsibility was to bring together a bunch of pastors to speak about um, HIV and why it is that the church was not instrumental in doing some things. Yeah. There. Um, one of the questions that was asked, or that was, it wasn't even a question, actually, it was a statement that was made. Well, gentleman said that he believes that the church needs to change the way they talk about um, the Bible because then people will get tested. I'm like, wait a minute. First off, if you're going into the church, that you really don't know anything about and you're telling them Mm -hmm. that they should change the Bible. There's something wrong with that because you go anywhere else and you say, all right, let me make sure that I meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. But when you come into the black church, for some reason, you can't meet people where they are. You want to tell them Mm -hmm. where they should go or how they should do things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you, you won't be successful in doing that. Um, Same individual made the statement. Well, you know, we got to do something because the churches don't have anything for kids. What church have you been going to? <laughs> so, sounds like a bunch of excuses to me. And, and that's all it was. <laughs> that's all it was. And the, and the church, essentially, um, the pastors, there said the same thing. Mm-hmm. So one of the problems that they have when it comes to doing different things is the state 
will come, various agencies will come and ask the church to do something, mm-hmm. but they're not willing to fund anything. They expect for the church to fund it themselves, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not realizing that the church has a building that they have to pay for, insurance that they have to pay for, staff that they have to pay for. They don't have the funds to just do anything that right. somebody wants. Right. And uh, amazingly, they will spend millions of dollars with predominantly white organizations mm-hmm. to go into the black community and those folks don't generally go into the black community. Why? Well, they'll have different programs that sound real good, mm-hmm. but the only people that will attend those programs generally are people that, that are employed there, <laughs> people that are right in the building where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones that I wound up doing in Hartford and Waterbury and in New Britain, and all of them were successful, they were successful because for five weeks prior to each event, we took a team, t- team of people and walk 10 square blocks around where we were going to have the event, knocking on every door and inviting every them. person yeah. to come out to the it event. Makes sense. You know, and, and so people will come out. But um, there's not a lot of people that's willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to something like HIV and AIDS, um, you don't have to die from mm-hmm. HIV and AIDS. Mm-hmm. You don't have to, you know, even contract it. There's ways that we can deal with that. Right. Um, they say, well, you know, we don't want to spend money or getting gift cards or something. I said, well, you'd rather pay somebody's medicine for the rest of their life right which yeah. is least expensive yeah <laughs> you know so so, so you do pre- preventative work and so um so ha- do you have sort of like an outreach where you say oh you identify or people come up to you and say oh i, I have um hiv or aids and you, you direct them to certain services or uh do you do outreach like evangelism type thing with people what what are some of the other services that you provide we we do we have uh on zoom mm-hmm. we have a bunch uh, there's aa meeting on thursdays okay, at uh we we actually start on thursday we have bible study beginning at six o'clock mm-hmm. at six forty five. we switch over to a fellowship service cool. um then we go to seven thirty with the fellowship okay then at eight o'clock we have an all men's bible study uh on, on Thursdays. Okay, awesome. mm-hmm. On Wednesdays, I go to Celebrate Recovery, which is in Hartford, mm-hmm. and I facilitate the men's group there uh, to nice. make sure that they understand things about recovery. Okay. Um, on Mondays, mm-hmm. I have an open Bible study mm-hmm. uh, that I do at, um, it starts at 530 in mm-hmm. the evening, and it, again, is on Zoom. Um, anytime I have an event at any of the churches, mm-hmm. um I will always be there. For instance, the last one we had was in New Britain <clears throat> and I'm walking around talking to people because that's what I do. Right. Um, I don't generally go and say, hey, I'm a preacher. I just have a conversation. Sure. And this one lady said, well, you know, I've been trying to find somebody to help me with HIV. I said, I'm glad you came. <laughs> so I took her and I brought her to where she needed to go uh, to talk to people who were actually there mm-hmm. who would be able to provide services. Um, as a part of the planning body there in, in Hartford, uh, we have the Positive Empowerment Committee, which goes to various places talking to people about living with HIV Great. and being able to get through with it. Great. Philippians 3 talks mm-hmm. about Paul um, looking back and seeing some of the things he grew up, some of the privileges that he had as being a loss. So mm-hmm. he was a Pharisee. Uh, trying to pursue righteousness through the law. He eventually saw those things as being losses in the in the sight of the Jewish world that he lived in. He was stupid because he was giving up, you know, certain mm-hmm. rights or privileges, as I said before. As a believer, 
he turned his back on those things because Jesus was now his righteousness. Amen. So he says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, mm-hmm. but that which is through faith in Christ. Uh, um, I would imagine that as an attorney, you, what, what law, type of law did you practice? I, never I had a you. general practice. General practice, yeah. okay. So, so your your life, I would imagine, before prison looked very different from when you came <laughs> out. What are some of the things, maybe like touch on just two things, mm-hmm. that the average person would see as a gain in your life that you've now lost? Um, well, other folks would feel the use of the practice of law uh-huh. would be a loss. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily feel that that's a loss at yeah. all. Um, a lot of the capacity, unfortunately, to deal with people on a broader level creates a problem because they look at history as opposed to where I am and mm-hmm. going forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I am one of the persons who uh, reviews uh, funding proposals for yes. HRSA. That's the uh, federal government when it comes to health resources service mm-hmm. agency. Mm-hmm. Um, while I'm able to do that and do it well, I do have a law degree. Mm-hmm. Amazingly, anytime I've submitted a RFP, mm-hmm. uh, they found, oh, he doesn't know what he's doing. Of course. Really? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just amazing to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've watched people with far less understanding of what needs to be done in any capacity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, constantly secure funding to get things done. Wow. Um, but those things I don't get caught up in because Mm -hmm. God has a tendency to get me around anyway. That's right. Um, When you first started talking is me in the basement asking for, you know, money to get some food or some Mm -hmm, clothing. mm -hmm. Um, God has blessed me to have my own car, to buy my own house, Mm -hmm. to, you know, be in a position now where God, a fiance moving forward to do the things that that God would have me to do. Um, I'm able to function ministerially. And I guess Lecrae is um, one of the favorite people or one of the favorite songs I have. Mm. He said, I can play the background. Ooh, okay. I don't have to be out there in <laughs> front it, to it. accomplish the things that sure, I need to do. Sure, sure, sure. Um, if I put myself out in front, mm-hmm. then it's not about Christ. That's right. And it's about Christ. That's right. You know, That's so right. I can play the background and yes. I'm very well suited to do that. Very good. You know, but um, it's been a blessing to me. Yeah. Um, it bothers me sometimes when I see people will try and take advantage of that, mm-hmm. you know, but I always aware of the fact that God will take care of me. Very good. Um, always will. Uh, what are the gains? What gains? The gains are really opportunity. Well, actually I start with something simple. It's called peace of mind. Mm. <clears throat> Everybody's looking for happiness and I have joy. Yeah. Happiness, as you know, can be taken away. It can, it'll be fleeting. It's a surface thing, Mm -hmm. but joy is eternal. Um, I can go through some of the roughest situations and people look at me sometimes like, how come you're not bugging out? You know, I said, why should I? God is able, Mm -hmm. you know, he didn't bring me here to drop me Mm -hmm. off. You know, he's got a purpose instead of me looking. And this again is uh, for me, uh, one of the gains, instead of me looking for the sob story, the looking at the situation, the circumstances yeah. that can sometimes weigh me down. 
I'm now mostly looking for the lesson that he would have me to learn mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because the lesson itself has great value, okay. you know, and it gives me an opportunity to minister to that many more people. You know, for me, that's been a blessing. I just thought of something. How how do you force yourself to not look back? Well, you don't, I don't force myself not to look back. Oh, you don't force yourself. Okay. I don't dwell on it. Mm. Um, for instance, if I'm driving a car, yeah, the windshield in the front is kind of big. Mm-hmm. The rearview mirror is kind of small mm-hmm. because we should spend less time in that rearview mirror. That's right. Life is the same way. Mm-hmm. If I spent all my life looking in the rearview mirror, I'm going to crash. I'm going to run into everything. I need to spend my time looking forward. Yes. You know, because God said he's got my back. Mm-hmm. You know, he gave me all this other armor, but he's got my back. There's no reason for me to worry about what's back there. Very good. Very good. So you don't dwell. That's the way not to look back or not to look, but you're looking back, but not dwelling on it. Right. What you, you So your city, the, the, the city that you minister in is mm-hmm. currently Waterbury. What are some of the challenges you're having here that are maybe unique to this part of the country? Actually, and it's really sad, um, within the state of Connecticut, I found that most of the state seems to try to overlook Waterbury. Mm. Um, and and I, I mean, I'm in Hartford. They've got services for everything under the sun. I went to New Britain and they still have a lot of services. I'm here in Waterbury. Matter of fact, while I was in New Britain, um, I was at one of the companies there. And some of the people who are living with HIV here left here to come all the way to New Britain for services. Wow. Because they really were not getting the services that they needed mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And, um, and to me, that's sad. I'm, I live right off of Walcott, and um, I go through there. There's a little section. There's a street that's actually a street that I thought it was an alleyway, you know. But people are there getting high, running into walls, running into all kinds mm-hmm. of problems. And the supplies, the opportunity for correction or assistance is not as prevalent as it should be. Yeah. And, and I'm not talking about just from the state. Um, and, and I, I hold the church responsible for that as mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. because our responsibility is to go out into all the world and make disciples, That's right. um, not sit in your building and be comfortable mm-hmm. in your cushy chair with mm-hmm. your air conditioner, mm-hmm. but to go out there in the street, find people where they are and talk to them and allow them to know that there is hope. Yes. You know, I don't care who you are. Um, don't look at somebody when they come to your church, mm-hmm. like, look at the way he dressed look at the way she dressed. Well, you as filthy rags yourself mm-hmm. in case you didn't know it. Amen. <laughs> you know, so, you know we're not going down that road. I yeah. always I always had this mindset when um when I was passionate, I was passionate in Dover. And they always have the name plates on the end of pews, you know, so and so donated this in memory of so and so. And so I said, All right, I want to be in a church where you take all of those name plates off of the pews and on the front one put liar. The one behind to put whoremonger, mm-hmm. the one behind to put thief, mm-hmm. the one behind to put you all the way down. Every sin you can think of, when you come in, you find your pew. Mm-hmm. So you can't look around and talk about nobody That's else. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Done. You, so you thought about doing that when you were a pastor, you say? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. You probably would not have passed the board, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, as you look back on your years of ministry, what, mm-hmm. what are some of the things you thought, two things you thought were important, but are no longer important to you? <laughs> that are no longer important. Yeah. It's hard to find something that was important. It's not long. 
Well, yeah. it's, I tell you what, from beginning ministry, it's no longer important for me to do everything. Okay. That's what doggone shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, because um, as I said, I, w- I was told, you know, that's where the burnout came from. Um, I went to a ministerial meeting, the black ministers of Newark and vicinity. Mm-hmm. And all of the guys that ordained me were a part of that, that ministerial alliance. Right. Went to lunch after their meeting. Conversation with young boy. So, you know, it was a few years ago, mm-hmm. but young boy, and he's talking to me, uh, how long's that church been there? hundred plus years. How long you been there? Three years. Said, so, well, you know, that church going to be there when you're gone. Mm-hmm. God called you to teach, preach, and pray. Mm-hmm. He didn't call you to do the rest of that stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's what your members are for. Yeah. So that is something that I used to do Yeah. because you do it. You just do it. You know, you can do it, do it. Right. But no, I know I can wait for the Lord. Well, Lord, I need help. Got it. Delegate, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Last two questions. Uh, What would you like your contribution to the king to the kingdom to be? What would you like your contribution to the kingdom to be? Just minister to God's people. Yeah. Um, Particularly again. and, And I always tell people. For me, ministry, particularly to men, Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen people expend all their money, women, all their money and children and refuse to deal with men. Yeah. Um, The problem most times is those children are going to follow their father. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And so the problems that you have in the state is sending money out to help people. Well, if dad had a job. Mm hmm he'd be taking care of his own family. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If dad received a a spiritual toolkit as opposed to a world-oriented toolkit, Mm -hmm. he'd understand the necessity for taking care of family. So if I could retool men so that they will love their wives, love their children, provide for their wives, provide Mm -hmm. for their children, protect their wives, protect their children, um, that to me would be a great thing. Awesome. Give us a verse that you're meditating on now. And why? Um, be ye kind one to another, mm-hmm. tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Yeah. Um, and, and that's important because I have to always remember where I've been, mm-hmm. what I've been through, right. and recognize that God for Christ's sake forgave me. Mm-hmm. So I can't hold stuff against somebody else. Yeah. Um, I have to be able to let it go. It doesn't matter who it is. Uh, well, how come you talking to so-and-so? You know what they said? Mm-hmm. That's not my issue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if God was willing to let go of the stuff that I did, yes. how can you balance it out by mm-hmm. trying to hold stuff against mm-hmm. somebody else? Mm-hmm. See, I don't know about other people, but I can go down a laundry list of stuff that Andre did. Right. <laughs> you know, and I put that on a scale over here compared to what they somebody else may have done to me mm-hmm. that scale that i have over here that's against god mm-hmm. is down here yeah that little thing that somebody did to me mm-hmm. is up high mm-hmm. so i can't see holding on to that and that to me is probably the the big the best thing and it's the most continual thing mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. as life goes on there are going to be situations going there are going to be problems and hassles with different people yeah but I can't allow myself to be so absorbed into those things that I'm willing to hate somebody. Right. I'm willing to not like somebody. I'm not willing to work with people mm-hmm. because I think about all of the people who Christ worked with. Yes. There weren't people that liked him necessarily. 
They weren't people that even stayed with him when he was getting ready to be crucified. Mm-hmm, they took mm-hmm. off. That's right. They, did. <laughs> you know? they fled. <laughs> yeah, they took off. Um, so, as a matter of fact, they had opportunity. They sat down and ate with him in one second and then went and told the Pharisees the next second. Here you go. Come get him. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Yeah. But he was able to still eat with him. Yeah. I always marvel at the fact that Jesus obviously knew all of this before he even called those disciples. Yeah. Still chose to call them. And you know, when you say that, this is the thing that I tell everybody. I was even surprised at some of the stuff I did. God wasn't. He sure wasn't. He looked at me and he said, yeah, that's yeah. Andre. I knew he was going to get uh-huh, there. Uh-huh. Now we, you know, we're going to help him to get on through here. That's you right. Know? And uh, that's been a blessing. Amen. And and he decided to die for us anyway. I love that's that. Right. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Um, how can people reach out to you and learn more about your ministry? Uh, you can reach out to me through Alms Ministries, www.almsalmsministries.com. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there uh, you can reach out through me to uh, P.O. Box uh, 260397, mm-hmm. um, Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, the zip course, the address actually is 89 uh, Washington Street. This the P.O. Box is 260397. Zip code is 06126. Or you can reach out to me through telephone mm-hmm. at uh, 860-778-4017. And if you are willing to get up and spend some time in church or if you want to just grab me, you can always drop by Grace because I'll be at Grace every Sunday if I can help it. Um, and I'm sure they'll be able to get a hold of me as well. So uh, it would be a blessing. Again, if you want to go by the website, almsministriesactually.org.com. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, almsministry.org. Uh, the address, again, mm-hmm. is uh, 89 Washington Street, P.O. Box 260397. Um, zip code is Hartford, Connecticut. And the okay. zip code is 06126. And telephone number is 860-778-4017. Got it. All right. Thank you. Thanks again. I've said thank you very, very a lot of thank times, you. but I really appreciate your coming. I appreciate you allowing me to come here and to participate. It's been a blessing for me. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope that this episode encourages you to do whatever the Lord is calling you to. This is Tanisha. See you in the next episode. <laughs>